Adrian van den Hoven, Director General of Medicines for Europe, sits at the center of the industry tasked with supplying the majority of the medicines required to fight COVID-19 in Europe. With the record high demands for antiseptics and the current rush to secure and test antimalarial combinations to fight the Wuhan virus, his members represent the vast majority of the medicines and treatments that are required to keep hospitals open and sick people healthy. Adrian took the role of Director General of Medicines for Europe in 2013, and before that was the Deputy Director General of Business Europe. Adrian, how you doing? What's a typical day for you looking like these days? Well, although I'm working from home, I'm actually sitting on my couch about 14 hours a day. That would be a pretty good description. Is that not normal um, for you, Adrian? <laughs> I like to go in the office and sit in there for 14 hours a day, or rather 10 hours a day is more logical. It's been very, very busy, I would say, over the last month, because obviously the demand for medicines has uh, exploded. And on top of that, we've been confronted with a lot of logistical and very practical problems like transport issues and the like. And so that's kept us incredibly busy. And how has that been working through? Are you working with the commission, the member states? How are you dealing with those logistical issues? Well, it was incredibly difficult at first. So several weeks ago, we had a lot of difficulties in Italy. When Italy was at the peak of the, of the crisis uh, over there, it's still in a difficult situation, but it was much worse a couple of weeks ago. And at that point, we were basically trying to rush especially hospital uh, intensive care medicines into Italy because they were consuming so much. Right. And we hit a lot of roadblocks, literally, at the border points with Italy because, as you know, the borders were shut down. And so we had to work a lot with the commission to get uh, just to get trucks across the border, both into Italy and out of Italy because Italy is the biggest producer of active ingredients and of medicines in Europe. So uh, there was a lot of work there and it was very intense. And has the production been affected then in Italy as well? Is that also a constraint that we're fighting with? Well, the production has been affected everywhere to a certain degree. So we haven't had too many cases of infections inside uh, production sites. That has been rather exceptional. In fact, I haven't heard of any concrete cases in Europe, but there, there could have been some. But rather, uh, obviously, at this time, anyone feeling a little bit ill, any kind of symptoms is required to stay home, of course, at this time. So there's a, an issue with uh, not absenteeism, not f sort of forced absenteeism of some, some workers. However, this has been you know, largely managed and a lot of the companies are actually producing at highest capacity ever. So we've been able to work through a lot of these issues uh, over the past couple of weeks, at least for the production in Europe. I know in India, my colleagues over in India, they are still dealing with the effects of the lockdown there. So for chemicals or other ingredients coming from India, it's a challenge basically because it's very difficult for workers to get to their factory in India right now. So there's been sort of a general move in Europe to reduce capacity, cut costs. How are we doing adjusting for that now? Has that been a negative impact and an overhang or are we getting back up to speed with what we need here locally? Well, Dwayne, it's, it's really a big challenge, actually. For several years, um, we have been warning that we need to reform, especially the policies for hospital markets, because in Europe, in different forms and ways, every hospital market relies on single winner 
price only tenders. What that means is the tender is decided by whoever offers the lowest price. And we have been warning for some years that while this is certainly effective at lowering prices, it's a major disincentive to investment in manufacturing capacity. And so now we're in a situation where we have the biggest surge in demand for critical medicines for intensive care patients, as I mentioned, because of all the patients going on to mechanical ventilation. There's a really you know, limited amount of capacity out there due to the market structure in Europe. So we are doing everything we can um, to manage this and to expand output. We've even set up a special group of uh, companies that manufacture these medicines for intensive care patients on ventilation uh, so that we can do whatever we can. And we're working on different areas to do that. And there's even been a special commission policy decided last week to enable this hospital group to cooperate industrially under a special guidance from the competition authority. So we are really going as far as we can, but I wish we would have been more successful at reforming some of those uh, hospital market policies, let's say a couple of years ago, because that would have probably given us more manufacturing capacity and bandwidth to deal with this crisis. Yeah. And obviously a lot of that manufacturing then for cost reasons has moved even out of Europe. Is there a need to be bringing this back to Europe then? Do you think we just need to be housing more here? I would describe it a little bit differently. The global manufacturing of these medicines, in particular, these medicines required for intensive care, it is highly concentrated in certain global production centers. A lot of it is actually in India and in Europe. So Europe is a major manufacturing hub for the world for a lot of these medicines. Um, but so is India, of course. And we do import from India. So I don't want to not underscore that. But what a lot of people in the world don't realize is that they depend very much on these two regions, Europe and India, to maintain a huge amount of the global production and, and global need. Um, so we're actually cooperating very closely with the similar association to mine in India to try and maintain the maximum level of, of production capacity in both regions. So in Europe, we've learned to work under a lockdown system. So it's super complicated, but it is doable. And so we're giving, let's say, our experience to our Indian colleagues. We have been working for many years to try and strengthen our European manufacturing base. So this is really not something against India or China, because quite frankly, during this crisis, other than dealing with their lockdown or dealing with an actual infection, as it was the case in China, you know, neither of those countries has done anything to us to, to try and block the export of medicines in a big way. There have been some small issues with India, but not, not in a big way. So Europe is still a, a leading manufacturer of medicines and API. We're probably the, maybe the third biggest producer of active pharmaceutical ingredient uh, in the world. We manufacture a lot less starting materials than we used to. So China is really dominant, I think, in the production of starting materials. And we could do more to increase the overall resilience of, of the manufacturing capacities in Europe. So we definitely do rely on China and even more so on India for some of the chemicals and some of the medicine supply, more on the chemical side, I would say. So we don't really believe in autarky for our production. We think that would be a really bad idea and totally inefficient. As I said, China and India have not taken any deliberate steps to harm our manufacturers 
in relation to manufacturing supplies during this crisis. On the contrary, they, even when they've introduced restrictive measures, there's always been a way to negotiate with them. It's really the big lockdowns that have impacted production. You know, we need to just discuss and work together and balance things between their local demands and, and the need for exports, et cetera, with those countries. I think what we've seen is that wherever we can, we need to avoid any beggar thy neighbor hoarding policies by any countries in the world. Right. And I can say that some countries inside the European Union have also practiced this. So we have done a lot to lift restrictions between European countries. And, you know, one of the things we've realized is that we have to offer something to the countries as well. And that's why we've set up this special project on hospital ICU medicines to show what the industry can do to supply all of the countries and all the patients across Europe. Our industry, we've been applying a contingency plan basically uh, since January, as soon as, as China went into lockdown and its production went into slowdown there. We've been reaching out to the Commission and the European Medicines Agency already in February to set up kind of resilience uh, systems to, to deal with this situation. It took us a while to get from that initial call in February to where we are today, where a lot of the discussions are now ongoing and moving quite quickly. But I think we are moving forward, I think, in Europe. And I think the best efforts are being put in by the industry side and now the government side to, to maintain supplies uh, for all patients, whether it's for COVID medicines or chronic medicines, et cetera. Sure. Um, so there's a lot going on. Have there been knock-on effects of just the actual lockdowns for lack of people? I mean, are we able to get enough manpower, women power in place to actually drive the excess capacity or the growth in capacity you guys need? So Yeah, so I think from the manpower's perspective, this has been a challenge, but it is progressing. It's also been a challenge to find truck drivers. So, sure. you know, you need to transport medicines on trucks most of the time. Um, so that's something we've been we've been working around. We haven't had so many difficulties inside Europe, at least when it comes to the manpower. I think expanding the production output is difficult. You have both, let's say, physical, mechanical constraints, as well as regulatory constraints to that. So you, every time you do those kind of things, you need to work through those different processes. So a lot of the companies have expanded output quite significantly. But some of that has required kind of negotiations also with authorities and the like, and it's a complex process. Sure. But we haven't had too many difficulties, knock on wood, in Europe. Like I said, in India right now, it's a bigger challenge because in our colleagues in India, um, the lockdown has affected the ability of workers to, to go to work in the factories, actually. And that's something we were able to solve relatively quickly in Europe. One of the things that we're reading about, I think there's 22 drugs I was reading that are currently in some phase of repurposing. How quickly could we get one of these repurposed drugs, assuming that it shows promise that we can scale up production right now? Do we have capacity to make that happen? Yeah, so this is a, a challenging area, of course. So there are a lot of studies, as you mentioned, ongoing. And I, as I understand, some of the big kind of publicly sponsored studies, EMA or uh, WHO studies, um, the results apparently will be published in a couple of weeks, the initial results. These things, after the publication of the initial results, there'll have to be an assessment of the full results to know you know, what is the efficacy of these products and at what uh, stage of the disease. And then once you have those studies, then there's a second process that has to occur, which is a regulatory process to add this indication to the label. Uh, so if you mention hydroxychloroquine or 
or whatever, liponavir, ritonavir, or Z-packs, whatever. Or, yeah. yeah, exactly. The various molecules that are out there, you know, a manufacturer then has to go and, and normally put this on their label. And then you have to have all the other things on their pharmacovigilance, uh, adverse events, etc. So, I mean, this is another process. I know this process will go very, very quickly in this case, but, you know, just to underline, this is not automatic. So it's not because a study says something that the next minute it's on the label of the product. There's still a process that has to be followed. We know that also some companies, in addition to just testing these molecules, some of them are modifying them, right? So they're taking some of those older molecules and they're adapting them, which basically I, I suspect they're reformulating them. And those require a different kind of testing. Um, and I don't know exactly which kind of regulatory pathway they might take, some kind of hybrid regulatory pathway. So again, those things have to go through. And then I think once we know, then of course, then you need to move to a massive scale up of the production. And here, it depends on the complexity of the type of molecule and how big the current manufacturer or manufacturers are. So if you take like some of these are HIV drugs, and these are quite complicated to manufacture, but there are many manufacturers because many of them are generics, basically, or genericized. Um, and so there you have the original manufacturer plus several generic manufacturers. And presumably, you know, they should be able to scale up the production quite fast. But it's a complex form of production, which means it's harder. Then you have other molecules which are very, very old, like uh, hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. And, and that type of production, more companies could probably do that quickly. So other companies could produce that relatively quickly because it's not as complex to manufacture. I guess the scale up, it depends on what these clinical trials will show. If it's for strictly for infected patients or severely infected patients, or if it's for prophylaxis, you know, those are totally different scales, right? If it's prophylaxis, I mean, that's basically the, I don't know, the world population or something like that. (laughs) And that would take a while to scale up. If it's for a limited number of patients at risk of infection, then that shouldn't be too too complicated. Touching on the regulatory pathway then, do you see any changes that are necessary would be beneficial to the regulatory side to get these out quicker? Uh, I think the regulators have indicated that they will accelerate approvals, whether it's for repurposing or for novel vaccines or what have you. So I suspect there's you know procedures in place to make this go uh, quickly. But I mean, still there would have to be you know a formal dossier and all that kind of stuff sure. uh, to to enable this. I think what's important here is that you know we are careful with these molecules until you know some relevant clinical trials demonstrate something. And that's one of the things we are, we want to be cautious about because you know there are a lot of very very small studies involving seven or eight patients or something like that giving results and and it's difficult to rely on those kind of very very small clinical studies to extrapolate a lot out of that so we have to wait for some of these bigger studies to show show sort of the pathway if you wish yeah it's a big challenge though because obviously no one wants to be on the control arm right now (laughs) yeah i I, guess so i mean i think they're you know they're working their way through and i think for our for hydroxychloroquine i think the initial results are expected very soon so we'll see so we had an interesting situation where obviously there's been a bit of a a war of words occurring between China and the U.S. and the U.K. and several other countries about responsibility on COVID-19 and the Chinese at one point had threatened supply of antibiotics, et cetera, in sort of a retaliatory gesture. 
Should we consider this as a warning sign long term and reconsider our international supply strategy overall? Or do you think that this is just water under the bridge and everything will be fine? I wasn't so well informed about this uh, this threat that, that you mentioned, at least from our side. And to my knowledge, among the European industry, we didn't really feel any threats from the Chinese government uh, at any point in time. I mean, I even at a very early stage had quite high level contacts with the Chinese government when they were in lockdown and they were, I mean, quite helpful and open to discussions. I mean, there are a lot of things in China that will have an impact. Some Chinese companies basically went bankrupt in China as a result of the shutdown. Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. And so that for us is our biggest concern is, first of all, knowing which Chinese companies have gone bankrupt. Usually it's uh, some kind of chemical ingredient that they manufacture, either the active ingredient or an intermediate. And, you know, for some intermediates, the Chinese are really globally dominant in the economic sense. So, you know, we have to be sure there that somebody else <laughs> manufactures those intermediates if some bankruptcies occurred there. So we see it as more of an economic issue. I don't see, quite frankly, as I said, we're not big fans of autarky. But we do recognize, and for the last couple of years, we've been saying, you know, we need to ensure that Europe has an important manufacturing capacity for essential medicines, that this is not just a, an economic issue, it's a security of supply issue. And here, you know, we can do a lot of things and we have pretty concrete proposals into the commission of how we could do that, basically building on existing production capacity. So like I said, Europe is still a fairly big producer of active ingredient. We are a very big producer of finished doses for medicines. Other countries are bigger than us. So, you know, India is a bigger producer of both than Europe. China is a bigger producer of starting materials for sure. Um, so we are not the biggest, let's be humble here, but we still have very large scale and capacity. Can we scale that up further and, and expand those production sites to produce more and increase our resilience? Definitely, yes. And uh, we have proposals into the commission, which are basically about reforming certain market policies, like I mentioned about hospital markets, you know, ways that we can slightly modify the regulatory structure to integrate better API regulation into the regulatory structure in Europe. It's obviously regulated, but it's regulated in, a, in an extremely complicated way. It could be simplified and improve the oversight at the same time. And then there's a, a third aspect, which is for certain productions, for older but still essential medicines, you know, these are products with very low market prices. So the incentive to invest in a lot of manufacturing capacity here is limited. So we need to look at ways to incentivize what Europe considers to be its security needs. You know, we don't have to dictate what those security needs are. Governments can decide what that is, but you know, the EU should take that into consideration and it can adapt its policies to allow that to occur. Obviously, part of the problem then, or some of the challenge, is that healthcare and a lot of actual healthcare decision-making is made certainly at the member state level, but even in the case of, say, Germany or Spain at the regional level. So it gets very fractionalized as you try and work through a lot of these policies. What can the EU do to try and streamline? I think one thing is specifically during the crisis itself. So right now, as I mentioned, we're really focused right now on the medicines required for intensive care for all those coronavirus patients who, who need uh, support on with ventilation. And we have seen indeed 
that especially in bigger countries, it's very difficult to coordinate what the real demand is because whatever the federal government of Germany is not overseeing every single hospital in each region. It's the same in France. It's the same in Italy. And so we have asked for, and some countries have introduced a kind of central coordination to at least balance out what is the true need of the country in terms of, of demand and to get a better understanding of that. And also to balance it within countries to avoid, let's say, stockpiling in the east of the country when you need the medicines in the west of the country. We've seen these kind of problems in, in certain countries. So that could be done in a more efficient way, at least in the context of a crisis or of a shortage or a super demand situation, which I guess is the, the best way to describe this. If I look beyond uh, the crisis, what I can say is, uh, you know, I don't think the European Union is going to really expand a lot of competences into healthcare. But when it comes to pharmaceuticals, basically the entire policy, including of the member states, is actually regulated by framework, regulations, or directives of European law. So everything in pharmaceuticals is actually regulated by the EU, including the markets. Um, so I'll give an example. When I talk about procurement, hospital procurement, that's actually regulated by the EU procurement directive. So there is easily a possibility for the commission to provide guidelines on how to introduce a notion like security of supply into procurement of medicines. And you know that would be mandatory on the member states. They must comply with the framework of the European Union. In a similar way, with some of these older, more essential medicines that people need, you could think about well, what are ways that EU state aid law applies to manufacturing? Because our industry, you know, we are big investors in R&D, so we can use R&D tax incentives, for example, just like the rest of the pharmaceutical industry can, and we do. But there's no tax incentive for, say, doubling the size of your factory to ensure the security of supply of Europe of some critical product. Sure. And if there's no economic market justification to do that, it's going to be very difficult for a company to invest, say, 400 million euros to double their factory. An investor would not legally be able to do that. So these are things that could be discussed. And again, that's totally the framework of European law. So the European Union has the power or the laws to enact a lot of this stuff then the practical implementation would naturally be done by countries. But, but the overall framework is really under the commission's control. If you're looking at the panoply of things you've got available to you right now, if you had one quick win that you could leverage right now, if you had one lever you could pull, what would be the one thing you think that would be a quickest win for you and your sector? You mean in terms of the coronavirus or this longer term? Why don't we look at it both ways, either coronavirus okay. or going forward? I think for the coronavirus, what I would like to see is that we can work with the commission and the countries in Europe to avoid hoarding and stockpiling of any of the critical medicines needed for coronavirus so that we can enable you know, a fair distribution to where the sick people are actually in hospital or suffering. This is a major challenge uh, because governments are very frayed, and so they are hoarding or overstocking. You can pick uh, whatever you want to call it. Has that been a big problem? Have we seen a lot of that? It is a problem. It is a big. You don't see it because it's 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 done in very covert ways uh, by the countries, but it's a big problem. So, 
I think if if we can, and that's why we're doing this project on hospital medicines, is to show what the industry can supply for the whole of Europe and then to have a more balanced discussion. But I think we need to be balanced. I understand people are worried and I'm fully with the governments in taking precautionary measures. It, it makes a lot of sense. But even precautionary measures need to have a kind of basis in data as to why you need a certain amount. If you have no clue why you need, I don't know, a hundred times your annual consumption, we don't feel like we should stockpile that. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I'm not that far off. Um, so, <laughs> it's a slight exaggeration. <laughs> uh, so we need to have these more balanced approaches. And I think that's something short term that, that really has to come. And, and we're building this data ourselves. So we are collecting this data through a consultancy and all of the companies to be able to offer that solution. But we need everyone to be reasonable. And to make data-based decisions. What about um, the long-term side then? I think on the long-term side, both countries and the European institutions need to stop saying as an excuse they can't do anything because there's a division of competence where the commission has this authority and the member states have that authority. It doesn't really matter who has the authority. You can change these things. And in most cases, as I was mentioning, you first need to change the EU framework, the different regulatory or legal frameworks that the European Union is obviously responsible for. Some of these, you don't even need to change the law. It's just offering a guidance. These things can be changed, saying that you can't do anything because this member state competence is actually not true. And on the reverse side, if, if we change some things to improve the security of supply or the resilience of our manufacturing capacities, the member state should actually implement those changes. You know, the reason why we've been saying this for years and nothing has been happening is because governments essentially don't want to pay literally peanuts more for some older essential generic medicines than they currently pay. They want to get the absolute lowest price possible with the resulting impact that you're seeing this big consolidation of the manufacturing capacity and those, those supply chain formulas that you mentioned, which are very efficient and cost effective, but which don't give you a lot of buffer to have extra manufacturing capacity. You have a, we have a limited buffer, if you wish. These things need to be talked about. They need to be paid for. It's in the overall scheme of the drugs bill of the European Union, it's peanuts. We need to start moving towards more rational discussions and, and everyone taking their responsibility. Manufacturers, of course, but also the European Union and the governments. Adrian, thank you very much for your time. I mean, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, well, look forward to hearing your podcast. <laughs>